Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Sarah Smith, who is a writer. She was born in 1966, which I've been told is the best year for anyone to be born in. So uh, I'm in good company, or you're in good company, Sarah. Uh, And Sarah grew up in Lanarkshire. She's married with two grown-up daughters and has lived in the West End since she came to the University of Glasgow to study English back in the 1980s. She has had a wide range of jobs, student support officer at a university, coordinator of an advocacy project for disabled people, a tutor in community education, a family history researcher, and a tutor for school pupils sitting SQA exams. Sarah's work, short stories and poetry, has appeared in journals and anthologies, including New Writing Scotland, Flashback Fiction, Gilded Dirt, and From Glasgow to Saturn. In 2018, Sarah completed an MLIT with distinction in creative writing from the University of Glasgow and went on to gain a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award in 2019. Sarah has also written a novel, a historical crime novel called Hear No Evil, which is set in early 19th century Glasgow and Edinburgh and is inspired by the real-life case of the first deaf person to be tried in a Scottish court. Sarah, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hello, Paul. Lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me. What I was going to say, the first thing that was interesting with it when I was reading the introduction, and I had just been reading a thing recently, it was actually, uh, I think it was a literary agency, and they were giving you all those different bits of advice, how to approach an agent, how to pitch, and they were talking about the perfect pitch, and when I read the description of your novel, Hero Evil, I thought that is a definition of a perfect pitch, because as soon as I read that, I thought, that sounds amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, I have to admit, I've worked really hard on that pitch. But funnily enough, although I've been writing the book for a couple of years, the kernel of what it's about has remained the same, even though lots of parts of it have changed and adapted over the piece. And it's based on a real life case. So it was kind of like having a bit of a gift from the past, really, and being able to take that and run with it. So I think that's actually helped the pitch a lot. And I was wondering as well, you know, I mentioned that you had done the MLIT at the University of Glasgow and that's obviously a very prestigious course and, and a lot of people have gone through that over the years, have gone on to, to have you know, careers in, in publishing and, and had novels published. As part of the course that you, as well as obviously encouraging your own creativity, did they kind of touch on those other almost like business aspects of either how to get an agent, how to get a publishing deal, how you write a synopsis, things that are absolutely crucial. Obviously you have to write a novel, but even just either that one sentence described in your book or the, the synopsis, which agents and publishers are always keen to read as well. Yeah, they do. The, the course itself kind of splits three ways into, so you've got the first bit is about writing, getting your own writing done and getting support to do that effectively. And then there's the second bit is a, it's called craft and experimentation. And it's about kind of reading widely and looking at different ways to tell a story. And then the third part is what you're talking about. It's about looking at kind of the editing process and then the publishing process. So early on in that course, we were given exercises to do. So we had to write things like our synopsis 
we had to write um, a blurb for the back of the book and a kind of um, we had to write a letter to an agent that type of thing so there were practical stuff like that but also there were people who came in to talk to us like agents people from small presses people who organized festivals that kind of thing so you got a really good range of discussion and input from people who were working in publishing in all kinds of areas because obviously the people on the course doing the MLIT I was writing a novel I knew I wanted to write a novel but there were people writing poetry there were people doing kind of experimental stuff people doing more genre fiction and that meant that I suppose the the lecturers and the, the way that they presented the course had to kind of cover all those bases So there were lots of people who came in. Some people were more relevant to the work I was doing, some people less so. But yeah, lots of practical help as well as sitting, writing and talking about sentence structure and things like that. One of the things that always strikes me uh, whenever I've spoken to anybody who's done the course, and it's that sense of community. You know, like writing is often seen as a solitary pursuit. And particularly I remember talking in the podcast recently to Rog Glass, who had done the course, I think, when it was split between Strathclyde and Glasgow. He now runs Creative Writing course at Strathclyde University. And that was one of the real appeals for him, that you're suddenly in that environment alongside other writers, even just to chat about your work and just being in that whole creative process. And, and I'm guessing that must just help you, just even in your confidence and just actually your writing. Yeah, that was the thing I think that I got. I mean, I, I felt that that whole year that I did the MLIT was one of the best years of my life. I learned so much. And I learned it from the lecturers and the work that we were doing, but I definitely got an incredible amount from talking to, socialising with the other students on the course. And one of my fears about going back to education, I, I went back there 30 years after I'd done English as an undergraduate, and I was a bit worried that I was going to be really old and I would be in a room with 20-year-olds and I would feel completely at sea. But actually, there was a huge range of people doing the course. And I think that because you've got people doing it full-time, you've got people that do it part-time, there's a distance learning element as well. So you get to know all of those students who are doing it in all these kind of different modes of study. And yeah, just it just really opens up my eyes to what was going on in literature and it kind of broke me out of my comfort zone which was great and I made loads of really good friends that I'm still in touch with and they were really supportive and honest as well that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about it that I got completely honest constructive feedback from the people who were on the course with me there was no nobody was saying yeah that's great or that's brilliant you you've written a book it was that they could pull it apart and look at what was wrong with it and help me kind of put it back together again so that was really really valuable because that was one of the, well, one of the things you kind of just touched on that which struck me, because I think for a lot of people, they would maybe like to either go on to higher education, you know, when they're older or go back to it. But there is that, as you say, maybe in the back of your mind, you're, you're quite daunted at the prospect because just in your head, you think, you know, universities are just full of all young people. So it's good to know that that course in particular. But interesting, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who one of their relatives has written a book and they'd been given the first few chapters and they said that, you know, they were really thrilled and honoured to, to get the, the book to read, but it's quite a difficult thing when you're reading something written by somebody you know, you know, you're touching that fact, you need that kind of critical honesty. It's probably sometimes it's better if it's somebody that's not too close to you because it's difficult for both of you then if somebody you know is reading your work, what do they say and how do you react to it? 
it's even difficult if you like the book. It's not even just about be, not being able to tell somebody that something's wrong. It's that if you don't have the vocabulary in which to tell them what's wrong or what's right with the book, that can also be really daunting. And I felt that being on the MLIT taught me how to do that more effectively. I was able to kind of frame my comments about other people's work and be honest but encouraging. And there is a bit of a, an art or a craft to doing that. And it's, it is a learned thing. That actually is really useful. I feel much more confident myself about giving feedback, um, having done that and practiced that with other people. I've got lots of friends and family who have read my book and have given me brilliant feedback and been really encouraging. But I am always a wee bit worried about giving it to somebody that I know. Not because they might hate it. I don't, not everybody likes every book. That's, that would, that's fine. But I just don't want to put them in that position of feeling really awkward and thinking this isn't really for me and I don't know what to say. In terms of the podcast, obviously, I'm taking you back to the literary journey of your life. And then we go back all the way, first of all, to childhood. And it's to pick your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt, Edith Nesbitt. Why, why that book in particular? I found it quite hard to choose one book from my childhood because there were so many books that I enjoyed growing up and I read an awful lot and it was something that I got a lot of pleasure out of and like I sort of look back on a lot of books with a great deal of affection. But I think the reason that I chose this one is because I loved the book and also when I was growing up the famous film version came out and it was on TV a lot so I watched that over and over again. It was every Sunday afternoon wasn't it? <laughs> I think so, I think it alternated with The Great Escape and Sound of Music, <laughs> that was the three. And I loved the book because it was something, it was set in a time that was completely different to the time that I was living through as a kid. So it was quite an escapist experience to read it. And in the book, the three children and their mum move from Edwardian London and very comfortable upper middle class life to a cottage in Yorkshire because they are running away from the fact that their father has been imprisoned for spying. And the kids don't know that, but the mum knows it. And so she, I think she takes them there to kind of shield them from that. And as the reader, you don't know that until you're a little bit further through the book. And I think from memory that you find, the reader finds that out before Bobby, the heroine, finds out. So there's this kind of, it's kind of an idyllic place that they go to stay, but it's sort of, they're living in kind of genteel poverty, um, which... To me, although that was genteel poverty for these Edwardian middle-class kids, to me it was, I just thought, oh, I'd love to live in that cottage in the country. Um, and, yeah, with a housekeeper. <laughs> and, and so, it, yeah, the, their perception of their poverty is, isn't necessarily that realistic. But as a kid, I enjoyed it. It's got lots of stuff in it. It's got adventure in it, and it's got... There's really great relationships between the characters. There's a really strong female character who's the main protagonist in Bobby. Um, so I kind of, she was a bit of a role model for me. And obviously Jenny Agatha played her in the film. So that just ramped it up. And there's kind of lots of kind of social comment as well in it, which in some respects, because of the time when it was written, is a bit old fashioned. But, you know, there's a really good feeling about people looking after each other. 
and kind of protecting each other and communities working together for the greater good. So there's some nice messages in it as well. Would that have been a book that was in your house or did you discover that through the library? And what age would you have been when you first read it? You know, actually, I've been trying to remember whether I saw the film first or read the book first, and I can't remember. I think I had the book. Like, I owned the book. It wasn't a library book. My mum and dad were both really big readers, and my dad had been to university, and he had lots of books that he'd read at university, which were obviously, as a child, were completely over my head. And he was a big crime fiction fan, so he had lots of of kind of a slightly strange mixture of very intellectual university books and um, lots of pulp crime fiction from the 60s and 70s. So there was lots of books in the house, but not necessarily kids' books because they hadn't really come from homes where there were books, uh, my mum and dad. So it wasn't like we had this big kind of library of children's books. So we went to the library a lot. and That was a very regular thing on a weekly basis. So I had lots of library books but I also got books from, we lived in Cumbernauld and we used to go to the Scan bookshop in the town centre. If I went with my dad to that, he would sneak himself a book and I'd get a book. Because it's funny, I think, probably without fail, any discussions I've had in the podcast with people of our generation or even, you know, just even a few years younger, a few years older, the library plays an absolutely central part in our reading development. That although the, you know we would have been encouraged by our parents, there might have been books in the house, there might not have been, but libraries were actually central. So it just worries me even now. Sometimes libraries seem to be the first thing that suffer when there's cuts. And I think you know any time, but even more so now, it's never been more important that we should be encouraging people to use libraries because it's a gateway into you know like you and I have spent our whole lives reading. That would have started partly when your parents took you to the library. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you about libraries. I think that the habit of going to the library is something that I don't even remember that starting in my life. I just went to the library. So when my mum or my dad went to the library, I was with them. I went to the kids section. I got to choose my books and they came home with us. And then we went back. So I think you got them for about two weeks then. You're allowed to um, keep them for a lot longer nowadays, but you kept them for a couple of weeks and then you would go back. And so you had as well as having the routine of going to the library, you also had to finish your books. I don't ever remember getting books renewed. You had to finish the books and then you got other ones. So as a kid, without you even realising, it sort of got you into a routine of reading. And I think that was what the libraries gave me and just a feeling of being really comfortable around books and trying things. So while there would be... If you went to a bookshop, you'd have to know what you wanted and choose it because you didn't want to choose the wrong thing because that would be a waste of the precious money that you were spending on the book that you were buying. In a library, you can experiment more. You can try things. I've missed libraries an awful lot during the lockdown and I spend an awful lot of time in libraries still. But I I do think that people's reading habits and the way that they consume books, especially young people, has changed so much that it kind of worries me that unless the libraries keep up with that, they kind of run the risk of having a smaller and smaller audience. That's a worry. Um, I don't really know how they do that because they're so underfunded. That, yeah, that, you know, that's my biggest worry. 
I have to make a, it's almost like a slight confession, because I remember when my kids were wee, and I took them to, to Bishop Briggs Library, which is the same library when I was growing up that my parents had taken me. Oh, that was one of the ones that we used to go to, because we moved from Cumbernauld to Muirhead. I used to go in the car with my dad to go up to Bishop Briggs Library. It's, it was a, it's a great library. I love taking the kids because it kind of brought back memories for me, but I, I rather shamefully, one, one of my daughters, uh, Rebecca, who I've, I've spoken about in the podcast, who's the, who's the big reader, and she'd taken books out, and when, when it was time to go back, one of the books she couldn't find, I said, that'll be fine, we'll find it, we'll find it. And then a couple of days later, I wrote this spoof letter and posted it, claiming from the library and saying that until she handed the book back, she was banned from reading, and she was devastated. So I had to quickly say, right, I was only kidding. And I still feel slightly guilty about that. That's a horrible thing to do. <laughs> I think we're off reading, to be fair. I, yeah, well, I've got a confession to make, which I need to go down and make to Partick Library. That during lockdown, I had three books out and I can only find one of them. Because there was nothing to do in lockdown, I did loads of clearing out and um, getting rid of things. And I'm really worried that these two library books went in one of the bags of books that went to the charity shop. Eventually, I'm going to have to bite the bullet and go and admit it and see what happens. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, if anybody from Partick Library is listening, then if you missed a couple of weeks, start looking at local charity shops. I will take you on now to, to the next question, which is uh, your favourite book from kind of teenage student or formative years. And the book that you've chosen in this category is The Bus Conductor Hines by James Kilman. You couldn't really think of more of a contrast with the railway children, which just goes to show what happens to you when you grow up. I read Bus Conductor Hines I think when I was maybe in the last year of university or just after, what I find funny looking back at it is that the people that I was reading outside of university in my spare time are now the people that get studied at university. But when I was reading them, they were the kind of new kids on the block and they, you know, they absolutely would never have been on a university syllabus. So it was almost like... I really enjoyed that contrast. They were kind of the thing that I really wanted to read rather than maybe what I was, all of what I was reading at university. So people like James Kelman and Liz Lockhead and Tom Leonard and Alistair Gray and Agnes Owens. The reason I chose Bus Conductor Hines particularly was that I just found it a complete revelation to be reading a book where people spoke the way that people spoke when I was walking past them on the, the streets and the fact that the main protagonist was walking through the streets to get to his flat in Drumchapel and he was walking the same streets that I was walking along and, and he was going through the same park and he was meeting the same people. You know, he was a bus conductor on the bus that I was on. So just the very fact that he kind of inhabited a world that I completely recognised and spoke in a way that I completely recognised was, oh, it was just wonderful I really loved it I, I was very very taken with the book at the time and I've read it again a couple of times I read it fairly recently like maybe a couple of years ago and I still absolutely love it reading it as an older person I found other layers in it about his relationship with his wife and his son and society that I maybe hadn't picked up on when I first read it and should you explain to, to younger listeners what a bus conductor is? Because obviously that was back in the days when you were on the bus and the conductor came up and down and, and collected your fare rather than you put it in the wee machine. 
took me a long time to kind of get into James Kelman. I read Duskin, Dr. Hines, tried to read at the time how late it was, how late I, I struggled for a long time with James Kelman. I found it quite hard to get into. And it was only after I read You Have to Be Careful in the Land of the Free. It was almost like that kind of unlocked it for me. And, uh, and most recently I read Dirt Road, which I just think is extraordinary. But it wasn't an easy pathway for me into James Kelman. Funnily enough, when it came out, I struggled a bit with how late it was, how late. At that time, though, I really enjoyed his short stories. But I've gone back to his other, his earlier work later on and appreciated it more. I found that strange because for some reason, the character of Rab Hines and the bus conductor Hines is, I just felt like I knew him. And so he, he kind of took me into the story and, and I, wanted to, I wanted to be on the journey with him. Whereas I think I'm thinking it's how late it was, how late and a chancer. I found them harder at the time to get into. But I just think James Kelman, he just did a remarkable job of evoking a person and a place and showing somebody doing realistic things. I had a quick look on Goodreads to see, I was trying to remember what Heinz's wee boy was called. So I looked on Goodreads. And I start. I went into a rabbit hole of like lots of comments, and it definitely divides people. <laughs> it's either five star or two star. It's really interesting. I, I always think. Well, first of all, I think it's incredible that James Kelman is the only Scottish writer that's ever won the Booker Prize. Mm. And even at the time, I think one of the judges actually stormed off the panel because they couldn't accept that how late it was. And one, but also I think when I was just doing some research on the bus conductor Hines, I think I must have been submitted for the Booker Prize and one of the judges at the time. I don't think it went anywhere near the long list, never mind the short list, but they, they described it as one of the two worst books submitted. And I think it's because that thing you were touching on, he was, no, it wasn't so much the subject matter, it was the language. He was talking in the language of the characters of where they were. And it obviously jarred with a lot of people who were just, who had set ideas of what a novel should be and how it should be written. It's quite strange looking back on all of that controversy because I, I remember when he won the Booker, I remember watching his speech, I think it was some of it or all of it was broadcast on TV. So that would have been mid-90s. I remember he got up and kind of, I remember watching him and, and actually feeling really fearful for him because this controversy was raging and he, and he got up and he made a really impassioned, brave speech and... I remember thinking, I don't think the audience in that room are really there with him. And, and yeah, as I say, feeling a bit fearful for him. I'm sure he didn't need me to feel fearful for him. He could hand, so he was talking a lot of sense and he could completely handle himself. But it's interesting to think how, just how much controversy that caused. And it is all to do with the language. It was all to do with the swearing, mainly. While I can kind of understand that if you haven't been brought up in the west of Scotland and you don't wander around hearing that kind of swear words being used as adjectives or verbs or, or nouns just willy-nilly, um, and that isn't a normal thing for you to hear, that it might take a wee bit of getting used to. I do think that, well, why wouldn't you get used to it? You know, it's, it's no different from, to me, it's no different from reading Shakespeare and getting used to that language, that's different language. Or reading something like um, Laurie Lee, who uses lots of, remember where he was from, he was sort of the West Country. So it's no different from just getting in tune with that kind of dialect. But I think there was just such a, such outrage about it, which... Yeah, it was a real snobbery, that kind of 
literally snobbery about it. You mentioned some of the names you mentioned are kind of the I, I would guess are kind of the trailblazers for what's mm. come in Scottish literature over the last thirty odd years. We did a podcast recently with Douglas Stewart, who's actually shortlisted for the, the Booker Prize for Shuggy Bain, which we'll talk about later in this podcast. But we were talking about how somebody like Agnes Owens, for example, is one of Scotland's best kept secrets. I think Tom Leonard is as well, because one of my, my day jobs is the editor of the Celtic View, and one of my proudest moments was we published one of Tom Leonard's poems. It's a poem called Fireworks, and it was basically, again, it's written in the vernacular, and it's just about Bobby Leonard, the Celtic player scoring a goal. It's one of my favourite poems, but it was just, again, what you were kind of saying earlier on about people describing areas and characters that you see, but reading a poem in your own dialect is just, it's transformative. Oh, absolutely. I remember getting Tom Leonard's collected collected poems, and I've still got it, and just reading that, that thing about getting into the rhythm of the voice and knowing how that voice sounds in your head. And, and yes, that's great because I can recognise it from my own life experience. But I do think you're right about the literary snobbery because I could also, at the same time, pick up, say, Linton Quasi Johnson and read his poetry, which is not in my own experience, but I could get into the rhythm of that. And I think it's about making the effort to do that. If you make the effort to do it, then you get paid back with understanding another culture, another way of speaking, another way of living. And I just think, why would you not want to do that? Why would you dismiss something because it's not written in your vernacular? I sometimes feel as well that, certainly in terms of UK literature, it's almost, it's specific to Scottish literature. So for example, we would read, I would read a lot of American literature, and depending on what part of the United States it's written in, the dialect in particular will be of that particular area. You attune your ear to it the same way as if you're watching a subtitle film, you just get your eyes and your brain click into place. It's the same way. So I don't understand why people shy away from writing books that are, or reading books that are, are written in our voice. I've been reading Queenie, which is by Candace Carty Williams. And it's about a young black woman in London, in present day London, and her experiences. And a lot of the words and the dialects are unknown to me. So it does take a little bit getting used to, but it doesn't take long to get used to that. You know, it is quite easy. I mean, that's the whole point of a book, isn't it? To, I think is to slip into somebody else's shoes and experience that. So kind of the wider your net is in terms of what you're willing to give a try, despite maybe feeling like, oh, that's odd, that's alien, that's strange. But it's only odd and alien and strange if you don't give it a try. Once you get into it, it ceases to be odd and alien and strange. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Sarah Smith. And Sarah, we're on to the next book choice, which is always, I think, a tough one for anyone who is a book lover. And that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Star of the Sea by Joseph O'Connor. It is a difficult choice because what I like might not be what anybody else likes. And I have recommended things that people have hated. So, the, And the reason I chose Star of the Sea is because I've recommended that to a lot of people who have loved it. And it was also recommended to me in the first place by somebody that I worked alongside and I really loved it. And it was the first Joseph O'Connor novel that I'd read. I hadn't heard of him before that. And I enjoyed it so much that I read lots of his 
earlier stuff and I still read what he brings out now. And I went to see him last year at the talking at the Edinburgh Book Festival about his new one, which is kind of about sort of loosely about Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula and this theatre world in, in London at that time, which I haven't read yet, but that's on my to be dead list. The reason I picked Star of the Sea is it's just this incredible, entertaining and accessible novel about the Irish diaspora and what happened um, during the potato famine and what happened and why people were so desperate to get out of Ireland. And so the Star of the Sea is this boat that is going from Ireland to America and it's packed full of working class people in steerage who are there for all kinds of different reasons. And you sort of learn bits about those characters' lives back in Ireland and why they've ended up on the boat. And then you've got the first-class passengers, some of whom are English, some of whom are Irish, and their kind of complete disdain for the people in steerage and the conditions in which they, through no fault of their own, find themselves. So it's kind of, it's a wee bit like a kind of microcosm of Irish and British society at the time. And so all the attitudes about the fact that it's much easier for the people in first class to assume that all these people are, are suffering because of something that they've done or something that God has done to them rather than because of political policy or just natural disaster. So, so it's kind of like a microcosm of what was going on at the time. So from that point of view, it's just a really good story. But what Joseph O'Connor did, and I think it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody doing this, was he has sort of found documentation scattered throughout the book. So there's things like adverts from newspapers or little bits of articles talking about why the Irish and what they're like as a nation and sort of a lot of kind of racist assumptions and propaganda that was fed. So these things are kind of sprinkled throughout the book. And I found that that was just such an effective way of telling a story. I think, I think it's an interesting topic, particularly, you know, in relation to Scotland and the West of Scotland in particular, because I've always found it extraordinary that, I think, I think after the United States, Glasgow was the main place where people from Ireland fled at the time of the famine, yet Glasgow is the only city of all the places where the Irish diaspora went that doesn't have a memorial to the famine. And that's been rectified just now. There's been a, a group that's been working to raise money and they're, they're going to erect a famine memorial in the East End, St Mary's and the Carlton, hopefully sometime within the next year. So it's definitely, it's a real, it's a subject which I think would, would resonate with a lot of people. Often when people send me the list of their books and usually there'll be a book that catches my eye and I'll say, right, I'm definitely going to read that. When I saw that, I thought, and you're probably the same, you've got like a, a multitude of books on your shelves that you haven't got around to reading yet. And I thought, I've got that book, I'm going to have to read it. So I, before we started the podcast, I went looking for it. I can't find it. I, I <laughs> Googled the cover, I thought, I've definitely got it. My guess is that it's probably in the same charity shop as the two books from Partick Library that you've given away. Well, hopefully somebody in Partick is going to really enjoy their, their reading over the winter then, courtesy of us. Actually, see, on that kind of subject matter, there is a book that I want to recommend to you because... I had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago called Tammy Hoof, and obviously this is just an audio podcast, but I'll just show you the, the cover. It's a book called A More Perfect Union, and she's written this novel. It's a kind of love story. It's based loosely on the true story of her great-great-grandparents. So her great-great-grandfather 
had uh, left to the United States during the famine and then headed, I think, down to Georgia in search of work. And when he went to the United States, encountered anti-Irish racism. And then when he got down to the South, he met and fell in love with a black woman who was a slave. And obviously, not only was that, that kind of relationship frowned upon, it was absolutely forbidden. And it's the story of their love story of how that kind of triumphed in the face of incredible adversity. I, ha- I haven't, it's the next book I'm going to read. It sounds amazing. That sounds absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I think that you're right. Loads of people, If you don't have to go very far back in your family history to have somebody. I mean, I've got a great grandpa that came over from Donegal um, and who ended up in the East Coast working as a shale miner. And I think that most people, if you go back a little, a little bit, um, will have something going on in relation to Scotland and Ireland because there was so much movement in between the two countries. I've worked as a family history researcher. I got really interested in that when I was working in community education and I sort of do little bits of research for people now and again. And nearly everything, every project that I've had has had an Irish relative somewhere who's coming over, either coming over to Scotland or going to the US at some point during the 19th century, so the early 20th century. There's just so much movement. But one of the really frustrating things is because it was all part of the same country there are no ships manifest there are no lists of passengers so it's really difficult to pinpoint who's moving around where and why until you get to certification within in Scotland that that's really good so you can tell what happens to them when they get here but it's very difficult to find out why they came well, my, uh, my family's actually from Limerick, so I'm, I'll be forever grateful my grandfather was born over there, so it meant I could uh, become an Irish citizen and, and hold an Irish passport, which uh, I think will be increasingly handy in the oh, post-Brexit era. Yeah, you're so lucky. I've only got a great-granddad, so it's not worked out for me. The other thing I was going to speak again when I was just having a wee look at Star of the Sea, apart from the fact I think it was phenomenally successful, among the many awards that it won, it also sold, I think, something like 800,000 copies in one year in the UK, he also wrote, I think it's described effectively almost as a sequel, a book called Redemption Falls, where, you know, according to the description, some of the characters reappeared. Is that, you know, you mentioned you'd gone on to read some of his other stuff. Is that a book that you've... No, read? I haven't read that one. That's another one that's on my, my pile. What happened after Red Star of the Sea was I skipped back the way and I read things that he'd, he'd written a lot of sort of contemporary Irish novels before that, maybe three or four, and short stories. I mean, he's a very prolific writer got a feeling it's Galway that he, he works. I might be wrong about that, but he's a university lecturer and he writes a lot of articles for Irish newspapers and he's done short stories and, and all kinds of things. There's a very good novel called Innes... I don't know how you, how you pronounce this. Innes Owen. It's about a relationship and set there. So it's very different from Star of the Sea. So I kind of jumped back, read them, and then I jumped away forwards and read this one called Shadowlands. They're all, again, historical novels, but they tend to be set in Ireland or England. So I haven't read Redemption Falls. I really need to go back and and read it. And actually choosing that's made me think, yeah, I need to read more Joseph O'Connor. I think like a lot of readers, anytime you're having a conversation, you will always keep saying, you've said it a couple of times already, my to-be-read pile. It's almost a kind of metaphorical, because it's actually, I, I, I don't know about you, but it's, mine is so, so big, it's actually, it's not actually, a, it's just, I think there's just so many books lying about that I'll never get through them all, but it's, again, that's just part of the, the joy of reading. There's always something else. You either discover yourself or, like, a conversation like this, 
both of us will maybe go away with different ideas of things that we're going to read next. Yeah, absolutely. I've also got a physical to be read pile, and then I've got I read I listened to a lot of audible books, so I've got all of that as well. So I'm finding that quite useful because I find that I I can't really read two print books at the same time. I can't read two fiction books at the same time, but I can read a print book and listen to an audible book at the same time. That's quite good. That's getting me through things a bit quicker. And I really like audiobooks a lot. I've, I think they've really improved immensely over the last few years. So that, that's, that's a good way of kind of catching up. Because I've, I've spoke to a few guys that I work with and they, particularly maybe they're on journeys to and from work or whatever, they are raving about audiobooks. I've not really got into them. I, I obviously I prefer the physical book, but I'm not convinced myself in terms of my my concentration levels when somebody's talking to me in my ears. I like, if I'm out walking, I'll listen to lots of podcasts. But what I like about them is, you know, sometimes you can drift in and out of the podcast. Whereas I think with the book, I'm guessing you probably have to have a certain level of concentration. Funnily enough, yes and no. I think the more that you listen to audiobooks, the less hard it is to concentrate on them. I tend to listen, I, I listen to lots of podcasts when I'm out walking. I, I, I walk a lot, like I walk, I hardly ever take a car anywhere and I walk around a lot. So I listen to either podcasts or an audiobook. And when I'm, I find that um, audiobooks are great for doing housework because that's the things that I avoid doing. I can persuade myself that if you go <laughs> and clean that room, you can listen to a book at the same time. And I feel like, oh, I'm multitasking here. So, so whereas if I get make myself a cup of tea and I sit down with my with my book to read, sometimes I think I should really be doing. I've got all these other things to do. But with the audio book, you can get away with it. From a book that you would recommend to anyone, and there was a few recommendations in that chat. We go to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and the book that you've chosen is Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Yeah, it is a really hard one to choose because I'm really a firm believer in if you're not enjoying a book, just put it down, forget about it, move on, read something you like. So I kind of don't really like wallowing in things that I don't rate or, or, or genres that I'm not that fussy about. But yeah, I think the reason I chose this was I think it won the booker. And then it won the booker of bookers as well, I, I believe. And I just don't understand why. <laughs> I tried to read it. I read the blurb and I thought, yeah, this sounds really interesting. It's all about the partition in India and it's got magical realism. And when I read it, I was going through a real, oh, discovering magical realism phase and really enjoying things. So I expected to really love it. And I just couldn't get into it at all. It felt like an exercise book. It felt like somebody was writing something because they decided to write a Booker Prize winning magical realism novel that commented on what happens before, during and after partition in India. I didn't engage with any of the characters. I couldn't connect with it at all. So at the time I thought, well, that's probably my fault. I'm just not clever enough to understand this book. But I did, I have tried with, I tried to read the satanic verses and I got about four pages in and just can't face this. And then I listened to, he brought out, Salman Rushdie brought out a memoir a few years ago called Joseph Anton. And it was serialised on Radio 4. And I listened to that and I just didn't take to him. So I think, I think I've, made, I've made a decision. He's not for me. Everything that you've said, <laughs> I 
either agree with or have said myself. I've tried as well, and there is still part of me that would like to read Midnight's Children, but I, about five years ago, I actually wrote a book called Read All About It, which basically was me charting a year of trying to read more books and kind uh-huh. of fall in love with literature again. Midnight's Children was one of the books that I was wanting to try and read, but I was really struggling with it, and it reminded me of, at the time when I tried to read Satanic Verses, and again, I bought a copy at the time with the, the fatwa and everything, and I always remember... And this was in the book that there was a guy called Benedict, I think his name was Benedict Brogan, who used to be a columnist in the Herald. And he wrote this column once. And basically, I just reprinted the very start of it. The column says, take a deep breath. Now say with me, I have never finished a Salman Rushdie novel. Go on. There's no shame in it. You'll feel much better, I promise. And as soon as I read that, I thought, I cut it out. I put it in the back of the book and thought, that's me. If Benedict Brogan says that, I, I, I agree with him. Oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to find that and cut it out as well. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you. I've got, because I printed the whole, and it was that idea. Basically, what he's saying is going to the heart of what, how you started this, by saying you don't believe in just toiling through with a book you don't like. There's always another book, a book you'll enjoy more. And just because a book is perceived as kind of being worthy from a literary sense, that doesn't mean you'll necessarily enjoy it. It's a subjective thing. So just move on to another book. Yeah, it is completely subjective. And if other people love Midnight's Children, then great, good for them. I'm glad they enjoyed it. I mean, I did make it to the end because I made myself finish it because I, I was, I think I thought that if I make myself finish this, at some point, my brain will suddenly open and I'll be incredibly <laughs> clever and I'll understand what's going on and it'll all be okay. But it never was. So it's, it's just not for me. Well, listen, you are, you are a better person than me for having finished it because I've got, I've got nowhere near finishing it yet, so... Yeah, I only got four pages into the Satanic Verses, though. And, and I did think his memoir didn't do anything to make me want to go back and try again because I found him quite self-absorbed and and wasn't very keen on his attitudes to women that he espoused in the memoir. So I don't think, I think that's over for me. I'm never going back. Because I did buy one of these, but I'm just looking at it here. It's, is it quick, quick Shorty or Quick Short that was uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize last year? It's a kind of, I don't know, it's his modern day take on Don Quixote, which, I mean, I love, I was just introduced to Don Quixote at the start of this year, which just absolutely blew my mind. So I was quite intrigued. I haven't got around to reading it yet just to see... And maybe if I read that, then I might go back and give them another chance with Midnight's Children. You're not convincing me otherwise, to be fair. I wouldn't like to put anybody off a book, so I'll just say nothing. Because <laughs> it's always difficult, you know, it's it, obviously for different reasons. It's always difficult just to recommend a book because what you might enjoy, someone else might not. And you know, sometimes you're choosing different books for people who you think they might like it. But it's the same of that a book you can be paid to read again because it's a subjective thing. And I think sometimes as writers, you're always... You don't want to absolutely slate a book because you would never want to be in that position yourself. I mean, I don't feel that guilty about it. I don't like slating a book, but I don't feel too guilty about it because <laughs> I feel like I'm punching up in terms of Midnight. You know, he sold a lot of copies. I don't think I, I don't have to worry that my little opinion about it is really going to make any difference to his sales or his life. So That would be fantastic for the podcast if he, if he did take on Breach with you. Because <laughs> all publicity is good publicity. We're on to the, the final question in the podcast. That is the, uh, the last book you read, the book you're currently reading. We did touch on it earlier on in the podcast. The book is Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, which is, it's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, the National Book Award, and the Kirkus Prize in the United States. 
Uh, he was on the podcast a few weeks ago. I, I absolutely love the book. I thought he was so just a wonderful guy. I mean, I take it you are you enjoying the book as well? I am really enjoying the book. I'm sort of more than halfway through, and I've been keeping it because. I was following what was happening with the book and I was following Douglas on Twitter and I had listened to him speak about the book a lot. So I knew I really wanted to read it, but I'd been kind of saving it so that I can savour it. And I've actually been going through it quite slowly because I don't really want it to end because it's just such a good experience reading it. It's just an incredible snapshot of a particular kind of Glaswegian life at a particular point in time. And the way that he describes the places and the people that populate the book, it's a huge cast of characters. You've got the central characters. Um, so there's Shuggy, the wee boy, and his mum Agnes. They're kind of, I suppose it, the book's called Shuggy Bane, but it's as much about Agnes, his mum, as, as it is about Shuggy, I would say probably about 50-50 and their relationship and how they're going through such a dreadful time but they, there's so much, they've got so much love for each other and I'm kind of conscious that I don't really want to talk about it like it's some kind of misery memoir because it's so not, it's got grim subject matter but there's also there's really, I mean, I'm laughing aloud at a lot of the bits of it. And sometimes I laugh and I think, should I be laughing at that? But the way that he skewers the characters that populate the scheme where they're living or the family home that Agnes comes from and the neighbours and things like that, everybody gets skewered in an extremely clever, descriptive way. And it just, it has made me laugh as much as it's made me feel absolute terror for Agnes and Shuggy. I first became aware of it, I think, just through social media, where it got published in the United States first. And so I was quite intrigued to see what it was like. You know, this book set in early 1980s Glasgow, but published in the United States, how, how would it read? And I was so delighted when I read it. And again, going back to partly what we were talking about with James Kelman and the language, it's a book that's really rooted in Glasgow. It's Glaswegian language. There's no compromise with an American audience. And when I asked him, Douglas Stewart, about it, and he said occasionally he was maybe trying to tone it down in his publishers saying, no, just that's the way the characters are. That's how they talk. Let them speak. And I thought, as a result, the book's been a phenomenal success in America as well because it's a great story. There's lots of references as well, not just the, the dialect that the dialogue's written in, but also the, the references to things like food and really trivial things that, that happen in society or in a community that he uses words that I had forgotten existed. Things have come up and I mean, what was the thing about when they're living in the scheme and what they're drinking, what they're smoking, all, all these kind of references to things that I think, oh, I've forgotten about that. But it doesn't seem like he's shoehorning those references in. You know, sometimes when you read something, and I think I'm guilty of this myself in my own writing, because I want to evoke a time and a place, I put references in, and then I have to take quite a lot of them out because I've, done, I've overdone it. But I never feel that with Shuggy Bane. You don't feel that they're, they're put in there to locate you in the place. They're just not, it's as if Douglas is there and he's just describing what's going on 
in this living room or down in a street somewhere. And yeah, really, really, really interesting. Because obviously he would become only the second Scottish writer after James Kelman to win the Booker Prize, should he hopefully win it. And one of the things I hope comes out of the book, again, the fact that it was published in America to great success, then it was published in the UK by a big publisher here, is that it maybe shines a spotlight on Scottish literature and some of the great Scottish writing that's happening just now, the great Scottish books. Because it's one of those great imponderables if it just been a Scottish publisher that published it, would you know, the wider UK publishing industry have embraced it the same way, but it already proved it, could, it had a worldwide appeal. You mentioned, again, when we were just corresponding, a handful of like brilliant Scottish books, Kirsten Innes' Scabby Queen, which is just, I think, an amazing book. Uh, Graham Armstrong's The Young Team, Alan Parks, the Harry McCoy crime series, Liam Michael Vanny's The Quaker. I mean, there's just a, a real vibrancy to Scottish writing just now. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I've read so many good Scottish books over the last maybe five years. And really, all of them really different from each other as well. But it's not as if people are writing to a template or anything. It, they're all, there's a really big variety. I really, I've, I just finished Kirsten Innes' Scabby Queen and I really love, absolutely love that. Quite apart from the fact I didn't like the main character. I that was, was what same, I thought yeah. was very clever about what... I, really, I didn't dislike the main character, but I didn't... I felt the way that the other characters in, in the book felt about her at different times. And I just... Yeah, the fact that she doesn't talk directly, that you only hear about her from the other characters is incredibly clever. And it's just very entertaining. And again, she does that thing of peppering it with these references that is great if you were around at that time and you can you can pick up on them but you don't have to know about them to get into the book either so that's and that I think that's really quite a difficult thing to get right but she definitely got that right and I really enjoyed Graham Armstrong's The Young Team and I can kind of see a line between Kelman and Irvin Welsh and, and Graham Armstrong the way that he wrote that oh that's a, it's just a brilliant book and that's a really good example of something where it's not my generation that he's writing about or my experience, but I completely understood where the people, the characters, the world in which the characters inhabited because of the way that he describes it. It's just funny, you know, we were talking about audiobooks and one of the guys I work with, he listened to that, the young team on audiobook, and it's Graham, Ali, uh, Graham Armstrong who reads it. And he said he's brilliant because he's just, obviously it's his voice, he knows the book inside out. But he said it was a brilliant listening experience. Yeah, I, I listened to, he was um, interviewed recently at the Creative Conversations at Glasgow University and on a, you know, online and I tuned into it. And when he reads it, it, uh, it is his, his voice. I was, I bought the print book, but I bought it at an event that Alan Parks was another one of the writers that I mentioned was bringing out the latest in his Harry McCoy series and he had done a really interesting different kind of book launch where he'd invited other writers as well to read their books and be interviewed um, so there was him and John Nibbon and Graham Armstrong and Chris McQueer and Wendy Erskine who had come over from I think she I think she's Belfast area not 100% sure that was where and I heard Graham read that. I'd never heard of him before then. That was before his book launched, just before. And the reason that I wanted to buy it was because of the way that he read it. It's, it's just incredible. So in a way, I was quite lucky because I already had his voice in my head when I read the print book. Um, so maybe that helped me get into it quickly. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a book on my metaphorical to be read pile. <laughs> Front to close in the podcast, obviously right at the very start, we kind of spoke in the, about the historical crime novel that you'd written, but you know, in terms of, I suppose, that a writer's always writing, are you constantly, or do you have another project you're working on, or are you constantly working on different ideas that you've got? Well, I'm hoping at the moment, during the summer, I signed with an agent, so, um, and I'm hoping to secure a publishing deal for Hear No Evil shortly so I'm kind of that's a wee bit sitting in a kind of metaphorical and real inbox and I'm not really doing very much with that at the moment so I've been thinking about what I want to write next and kind of playing around with some ideas doing a wee bit of research as you said it's you know it was a historical crime novel and it's set in the early 19th century in Glasgow and in Edinburgh so I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm going to do something set in another time period or bring it a bit more up to date. But the most up to date I've managed to get any of my ideas is like mid 1980s, which I think, <laughs> yeah, the, I think any school pupil would view as being history. As far as I'm concerned, at least you know the music would be great from that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Because you, you, you're a big Duran Duran fan, aren't you? I, I am a big Duran Duran fan. So yeah, yeah I, I do have a hankering to write sort of a crime series based with, with a female protagonist based in Glasgow in the mid eighties, just so that I can have her go to lots of gigs. Well, listen, count men. I'm definitely reading that book. Well, we are uh, just about out of time, Sarah, for the podcast. It's been uh, really great talking to you. If anybody wants to check out Sarah's book choices, if you just go to my website, com. every guest has their own individual page, and I just list all the books that they've chosen in each particular category. But Sarah, best of luck with, you know, with the novel you've written. I'd say it's the, it would be, for me, the definition of a perfect pitch for a novel. I'm sold on that one as well, and uh, it's been really nice talking to you about your, your favourite and not-so-favourite books. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been really, it's just been a blast. Great. What a treat to talk about books for a wee while. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.